Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are found. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss uh, President Biden's Strategic Petroleum Reserve release and Ezra Klein confronting reality. But first, we're going to Disney World. Not literally, but the conversation is going to Disney World uh, because of the new law that has been passed in Florida that we guarantee that you have heard of, even if you may not have heard of it by what it is actually called. HB 1557, the Parental Rights in Education Bill, uh, was passed and signed into law recently by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and it is known in the media and by its critics and what you've probably heard of as the don't say gay bill. And there is a lot of dispute and contention around what the law actually means and what the law actually does. But the thrust of it is in uh, section three here of the law, which I will read the text of it to you. Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. There's a bit more involved there, including in the next section, student support services, uh, training developed or provided by a school district or school district personnel must adhere to student service guidelines. There's... um, there's provisions that allow parents to, if uh, schools are in violation of this, to file lawsuits where they can actually recoup money at the end if it's found that schools have been in violation of the law. Uh, and as I noted at the beginning, there is a lot of contention about this and what it actually means. In an original draft of the law, it didn't just say classroom instruction. It said classroom discussion, which would have different consequences um, just simply if a discussion happened where something having to do with, with uh, gender identity or sexual orientation came up. And I think that there are some legitimate concerns under the discussion part of this. Um, one of the critiques of the law has been that it is – somewhat vaguely written and as a result is likely to invite a whole heck of a lot of lawsuits. Um, Gabriel Malore, who's a uh, appellate litigator in Virginia, uh, said to the, the dispatch, uh, quote, this is going to be a lawsuit factory. This is going to be great for trial lawyers in Florida. So before we get into the Disney portion of this, uh, having laid out what is uh, what is going on here, uh, Sam, do you think this is addressing um, a legitimate concern or is this a – well, beyond addressing a legitimate concern, do you think this is successfully addressing a concern or are the fears that because this follows a pattern of a lot of legislation and a lot of like CRT-related legislation around the country that these laws have tended to be very, very poorly drafted, that they could create more problems than they're actually solving. 
The first thing I will say is that I have no doubt that this will lead to lots and lots of lawsuits, partly because, as we all know, the United States is a highly litigious society and litigation is the way that many of these things are done and resolved. It's also a tactic, of course, to prevent particular pieces of legislation taking full effect. So I have no doubt there'll be plenty of litigation around these sorts of things, whatever you think of the facts of the matter. The second thing is that uh, by saying that uh, that the intention of this of this legislation, or at least the way it's worded, of this the way it's been passed, is that teachers should not be talking about these things with children of a, of a certain age. <clears throat> I find nothing objectionable about that. There's all sorts of things that we say. Uh, p- people working in particular situations don't suddenly uh, have free speech rights. So, for example, when you're working for a particular business, by virtue of working for a particular business, you give up certain uh, freedoms to speak about all sorts of things. You don't talk about company secrets anymore. You don't talk about personnel matters with people outside the company. So, again, so I, that, to my mind, tells me uh, that that in principle – these things are, uh, can be can carry some legitimacy. I don't have any problems with that. The practicalities of how that will work out, we're going to have to see how that happens, right? Because what is going to count as talking about sexual orientation or gender issues, what falls under that category? I think that's where a lot of the litigation is going to occur, right? Because def- even defining what that means in our age, where things like questions of sexual morality, uh, questions of human anthropology are now so broad and can be used in all sorts of different ways that they weren't used 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I I think we'll see that this legislation will quickly run into all sorts of obstacles. Now, I happen to think that uh, teachers should not be talking about these sorts of issues to children below a certain age because I do believe that that is primarily the responsibility of parents. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens when a teacher or some instructor or some school uh, does something and is, is sued from either side of this particular debate. So this discussion, I think, is obviously heavily influenced by the desire by many people who are deeply disturbed when they see what's happening in a lot of public schools, when they see the way in which uh, subtle messages about sexuality, which in turn reflects the broad sexualization of everything in American culture these days, there's a genuine concern on the part of a lot of parents that teachers should not be talking to their children about these sorts of things. And that in turn plays into uh, the way in which there are attempts in the United States today, primarily from the left, to limit and constrain parental authority and responsibility for their children. So I can see where this is all coming from, and you can see why people want to push back with legislation to say, no, you may not do this, because it's very apparent that some people on the left uh, will keep doing this type of thing. They will keep trying to push many of these ideas through the education system, or as we've discovered more recently, through private companies. These things will continue. And Legislation is one way in which some people believe that they, this is the only way that you can push back against these sorts of things. 
Last of all, I think it plays into the reignited cultural wars that are happening across the United States now and cultural wars that many people on the right believe they can win precisely because some of the things that are being articulated by people on the left are so extreme that it's alienating not just conservatives, but even a lot of centrist people and even some people on the centre-left. It's interesting looking at some of these opinion polls, right, about how uh, Americans and people in Florida view this legislation. When the left have difficulty getting a majority of Democrats uh, (laughs) to say that they have a problem with this legislation, then you know something's going on in in these endless cultural battles we see happening across the United States today. So much of this is uh, oriented towards curriculum, uh, which is also the nature of a lot of the discussions that have been had about critical race theory, that it is oriented towards the curriculum. And I think one of the things that one of the reasons I don't care as much for this particular piece of legislation, although I agree largely with what Sam uh, just said, the, the idea that um, any kind of instruction, and again, instruction now being the key word that they changed out discussion to be instruction, because um, I can understand people's problem with the idea that if something organically comes up in a conversation in the classroom, if there is a student in the classroom who has two same-sex parents and it just comes up in a conversation about what they did on spring break, that the teacher is now just in an absolutely terrible position. But to be clear, and there's been a lot of very bad reporting and representation of what is actually in the text of this bill, that is not in the bill. That is not in the legislation. Discussion was removed. Instruction was inserted. But that clause that I read to you, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. And it is goes back to the my hobby horse, which I talk about all the time on this program, which is legislatures, in this case, the Florida State Legislature, uh, not Congress, which is usually the subject of my ire, not doing its job. In terms of giving a definition of what that is, they are farming it out to other government agencies to say, well, these are the state standards. So you're basically just deferring this over to another battleground area where you're going to have this conflict now over what are state standards, who gets um, – you know, depending on who is uh, the governor of Florida and having the influence over the agency that sets state standards, if it's not going to be set legislatively, is – it's very similar to me to the way that we have legislation, which is not legislation in this country now, which is because Congress won't do what the president of the United States wants, then the president just issues a whole bunch of executive orders that when a new president comes in of a different party are just immediately reversed. And there is no um, – there is no stability to that. There is no carrying into the long term of what these things actually mean, what they actually are, so that people can grapple with that. And if you don't like it, there's a legislative way to change all of it. So I, I think the concerns over the fact that it is vague are significant, uh, but also the hysteria that has been drummed up around this legislation is incredibly disproportionate to what the bill actually says, which, as Sam pointed out, um, a majority of Democrats in Florida 
are in favor of this, which is, I think, an indicator of just how much the people who are uh, just beating this drum endlessly that this is the don't say gay bill are misrepresenting what the bill actually is and actually does. And the most important parts of the bill, I think, in terms of student well-being are the other parts of the bill. What you have, and I remember, you know, I was I was in a teacher education program over a decade ago, and we would have conversations about this because, you know, this is this has been an ongoing sort of cultural transformation. These things are becoming more common. Students will often reach out to teachers with their problems, with their experiences, with their difficulties. And how do teachers deal with this? And how do administrators deal with this? And there have been – there's been a different sort of answer to these sorts of questions. If a student is not doing well in school, if a student is doing well in school, if a student is um, you know, uh, struggling with depression, if a student is um, – you know, uh, you know, might be uh, experiencing bullying, these sorts of things. All of the, uh, the the default for everything else that happens to a student in a school context is for teachers and administrators to communicate what is going on with their child and to provide support for the parents and to provide support for the child. And you have, in some cases, some teachers who have taken it upon themselves to keep these sort of discussions that they have with students uh, from parents. You have some schools that, in fact, that is the policy. And the notion is that this is somehow different, that parents might not be understanding, et cetera, um, that this is some sort of protection for the child. But it ignores fundamentally parental rights, which is what this is about. And parents have a right to know what's going on with their children. And they should be able to trust that their students' teachers, that their school's administrations are communicating that with them in a straightforward way about what is going on with their child's life in school. And I think that's probably behind a lot of the broad-based support. Again, with these oftentimes, you know, it's the most controversial part. It is the most uh, uh, difficult part in a legislation in terms of like, okay, you know, we have all of these what-ifs. We have all these corner cases about what constitutes instruction versus dis, uh, discussion. Um, those are very difficult. And in a lot of ways, there's no way to write a law to completely rule out the possibility of lawsuits. And part of what our system is in the United States is that we adjudicate these disputes between rights in the court system. And that is just, you know, that is part of our system. And that is part of the checks and balances we have in our society to, uh, to make sure that, uh, that we're on the right course and that people's rights are respected. And let me lead, read the section of the law, of the legislation that Dan was referencing there. 
uh, adopts procedures for notifying a student's parents if there is a change in the student's services or monitoring related to the student's mental, emotional, or physical health or well-being and the school's ability to provide a safe and supportive learning environment for the student. The procedures must reinforce the fundamental right of parents to make decisions regarding the upbringing and control of their children by requiring school district personnel to encourage a student to discuss issues relating to his or her well-being with his or her parent or to facilitate discussion of the issue with the parent. The procedures may not prohibit parents from accessing any of their students' education uh, and health records created, maintained, or used by the school district. So the concern that critics of the legislation bring up is that let's say you have a eighth grader who believes that they are gay or that they are trans, they bring that concern to a teacher because they feel that their parents will not be accepting of them if they bring it up to their parents. And previously, the teacher would be able to refer that student for some kind of counseling. But I think as Dan points out, you know, you're talking about an eighth grade student here, right? So somebody who is roughly 13 years old, um, that is, in in effect, running a conspiracy against the parents who are the ones who are legally responsible for that child because they have not reached the age of majority yet. Um, so I, I don't think it is hard at all to understand the idea that you would want the parents of that child to know what is going on with that child, to know that the school has referred them for some kind of counseling and what it is about. And, you know, while you can understand that it will create there, there's just an irreducible number of people for whom, if that is the scenario, it is going to create uncomfortable conversations at home that they would rather not have with their parents. But these things, it just strikes me as being some kind in some ways absolutely unavoidable that you're going to have to have those conversations with parents at some point in time because the parents do have a right to know and from you know, we've been discussing a lot of i think both sides of this i think too you know there, there's a, a moral or philosophical way to look at all of these issues there's also a political way to look at all of these issues and from the political side as a former political comms guy let me just tell you establishing yourself as the people opposed to parents rights is not a good position to be in and that is effectively what people who are arguing against this that is the mantle they have to take up that is the banner that they have to bear is that they are the ones opposed to parents rights that is just not politically going to work out well for them no matter what you think of the moral or philosophical side of the argument there's another dimension to this, of course, Eric, um, and that is that one is that there's a lot of people on the left who actually view things like parental rights and parental authority as dated patriarchal notions and that the role of the government is to, quote unquote, liberate, <laughs> liberate us from these sorts of things. And that is very apparent from the language and rhetoric that you see from some people on the left on this subject. The second thing I would say, a more positive thing, is that it's another, it's another um, argument in favor of widening the possibility of private education as much as possible. Because let's for, say, for example, you're going to a, a Catholic school or an evangelical school or an Orthodox Jewish school, then presumably in those cases, in those instances, there will be 
an understanding, a proper normative understanding, a set normative understanding of the proper responsibilities of parents and teachers in these sorts of contexts that is much more disputable in a public school system because, for example, in a, in a Catholic school, one can point to the catechism of the Catholic Church, which describes parents as the first educators and that the job of the Catholic school, or insert whatever school, uh, faith tradition you want, at least in part is to educate the child in accordance with the values of the, of the school that the parents presumably buy into by virtue of the fact that they send their children there in the first place. So I'm not sure how this legislation will affect things like uh, the public-private distinction and the sorts of reasons why we have pri private schools in the first place. But it does, I think, point to the, uh, some of the problems that are inevitably associated when you have a public school system and some of the ways in which private school systems provide a way of getting around some of these problems or ensuring that they don't even come up in the first place. Maya, I remind you that uh, former Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe running to, uh, because Virginia has a weird system where you can only serve one term at a time, you cannot serve consecutive terms, uh, was running to get his job back. And in a debate said, quote, I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decisions. Yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think uh, parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And, you know, again, set aside any consideration morally, philosophically of that situation. That is just, uh, as was obviously demonstrated, not a very good political message. Shouldn't be very surprising that it's not a very good political message to tell parents of people involved in public schools that they don't get a say in what their kids uh, are taught. Although I think this is a moment that does uh, – this is where I get my very libertarian dander up about public schools and the nature of how we are deciding public school education, which is that it is captive to the collective decision-making process of politics um, in a way that you know it, it is a more of a uh, – the politics in a more normal way that we think about it rather than in the Catholic school example that Sam is talking about where you know there are politics within the Catholic church and you can go from Catholic school to Catholic school – as I've said to uh, as I've said to my wife on a number of occasions, comparing the Catholic school that our kids went to in Chicago, which I won't name, and the Catholic school <laughs> that my kids go to here in Grand Rapids, which I also won't name, we used to send them to a Catholic school. Now we send them to a Catholic school. Capital C Catholic. Capital C Catholic. <laughs> I mean, there is a difference in instruction of that way, right? Of course. But, you know, there is, there is to me fundamentally a difference in the stakeholdership of who has the stakeholdership in the private school that existed, the, either the one in Chicago or the one here in Grand Rapids that I send my children to, um, than there is public schools. In, in a way, you know, in a way... Parents do have a say, but it is through the political process and it is a lot less direct than the way that I believe I have a say and a stake in what my kids are being taught in a private school fundamentally because of the market point, right? I can take the tuition dollars I am paying to that school and I can take them to a different place. And if the instruction in the school I'm sending my kids is so bad that a lot of other parents were to follow my example, the school has two choices, basically either to change the nature of its instruction or or to find a different constituency, a different market for its services because the market it was serving, it was not serving very well. So in a way, I'm, I'm not 
trying to say I'm insensitive to the concerns of parents about public schools, but it's a public school system and you're going to get what you get from public schools. Let's move to the second part of this, which is related to the mouse. Got to talk about the mouse. Uh, So Disney uh, claimed to have been lobbying behind the scenes against this legislation, not wanting to see it passed and signed into law. As you might imagine, Disney has a lot of political clout in Florida for obvious reasons. There is some skepticism um, or not skepticism. There's some questions about whether or not they were actually really engaged in all of this. Uh, We're not entirely sure how engaged they were before the fact. Uh, But it passes and they effectively call this uh, town hall meeting with all of their employees and some of the material that got out of this town hall meeting, uh, which was leaked to none other than Christopher Rufo of Manhattan Institute. Uh, You may know him from previous scandals such as critical race theory in education. Um, I'll give you one quote from uh, from all of that. Uh, In my little pocket of proud family Disney TVA, the showrunners were super welcoming to my not at all secret gay agenda. Uh, Maybe it was that way in the past, but I guess something must have happened. And then like all that momentum that I felt the sense of I don't have to be afraid to have these two characters kiss in the background. I was just wherever I could adding queerness. No one would stop me and no one was trying to stop me. Um, And this is, again, an, an attempt to assuage the concerns of Disney employees. Uh, but you, as you might imagine, it created quite a stir for to hear employees of Disney, which is marketing a product to children. It is a children's entertainment company that also happens to entertain a lot of parents, a lot of adults, but primarily starts as a children's entertainment uh, company. So, Sam, we've talked, uh, we did an entire podcast episode of Act in Line on problems around woke capitalism. Um, is this just one of the more egregious examples of woke capitalism that you've seen? And how alarming should uh, we find these stories? Well, the first thing to say is because Disney is so focused on, let's call it the children's market, one should be rather concerned that. Uh, people working inside the company appear to have adopted a very clear political agenda in as part of what they see as part of their their work for the company. So that's the first thing. One one should be concerned about that. Secondly, it reflects uh, the thinking of a good number of people who have gone into corporate America more generally over the past 10 years who, for all sorts of different reasons, partly because of political trends, things happening in the culture, things they've, they've heard and observed when they've went, gone to college, including business schools, many of them do actually believe that part of their role in the corporate world is to bring, let's call it, woke thought, woke agendas to the conduct of business. This is particularly true in things like human resources departments, I often say to CEOs who ask me about this problem, I say, you should look very carefully at your human resources department and check out who's working there because I think you you may find that this is where some of these problems originate and come from. 
So, so it's not new. What's happening is not new. It's another manifestation of some broad trends that we're seeing happening in corporate America. But I have to think that uh, in the case of this instance, it's going to backfire on Disney because, let's face it, their market is for children. Most children are raised in families, and families have all sorts of very tolerant views about all sorts of subjects. They won't necessarily be uh, uh, the same views that I would have or lots of other people would have, but they have you know, more or less, uh, let's call it a tolerant view of all sorts of different questions. But they don't like it when they become aware that all sorts of subtle messaging is being put into this type of medium, you know, whether it's a Mickey Mouse film or some cartoon or some Disney movie, they won't like it <clears throat> when they discover that people working in a company actively see it as their role to inculcate certain ideas, about, particularly about questions of human sexuality. They see that as part of their role in corporate America in the business sphere. I happen to think that business people would just be so much smarter if they just got themselves and their companies away from this sort of stuff and made it very clear. They just drew a line in, this, in the sand and said, the, our role here is not to engage in, in, in uh, what effectively amount to subtle propaganda. That's not our job. Our job is to provide goods and services to consumers. That's what we hear about. That's the teleology of what we're about. The more business, corporate business gets themselves wrapped up in this world, I think, the more damaging it's going to be for them in the long term. But what I find interesting is a lot of CEOs, in my experience, don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the intellectual framework. And sometimes they don't have the, <laughs> the type of commitment that's necessary to address some of these problems. There's a difference here, not to me, just to me in degree, but in kind with what Disney is doing here. I mean, it was one thing during the George Floyd protests where that was one of the clear examples of every corporation had to make some kind of a statement, had to do the post the black image on Instagram or had to say something, you know, the I didn't get a harumph out of you kind of mentality that was around this. But that was just a the corporation had to make a statement publicly in their support of Black Lives Matter or of the cause, um, the stated cause for justice for George Floyd. This is different. This is the product itself being influenced. It would be um, as if, you know, Nike had to in some way change the nature of Air Jordans uh, to reflect their commitment to political causes, the actual makeup of the product itself, to source it from different places. Uh, they could do it within different designs, but even in that sense, is just a sort of appealing to a, a target market, and so much of this was marketing. Um, I, I think this is, a, is different in, in kind in that it is the product itself that is being directly influenced by this agenda that has been clearly stated to exist within Disney, which is a kind of remarkable thing, right, is that they were just so incredibly open and honest about it, especially in a world where you got to assume this kind of stuff is going to get out because so much of it has been getting out. Often to Chris Rufo, uh, who has been the one communicating this. And Dan, you uh, are well familiar with Mr. Rufo uh, as he comes up in your cover piece for the new issue of Religion and Liberty, our magazine uh, that is just out today and that we'll include in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, this is I mean, part of me, part of me was surprised by the brazenness, 
But again, this is this, these were leaked things, and this is something that Chris Rufo specializes in. He has become somebody people go to when they have the juicy info to drop. He does a very good job in disseminating that and causing the sort of conversations we're having right now. One of the things to think about with Disney, though, is that Disney has been an a open and affirming corporation for 25 years. It was in 1997, I believe, that they started offering uh, same-sex partners benefits at Disney. They have hosted Pride Days at the park for a very long time. And personnel is policy. And when you set those cues, you are going to get personnel that are comfortable with that vision. You will even get some activists who see, okay, this is this is a place that is open to this sort of thinking. And, you know, we've had, you know, one of the things that Cruz Rufo is trying to do is sort of mobilize some political energy here against Disney as a result of this. We had eight years of boycotts from Disney from the Southern Baptist Convention and from Focus on the Family that ended in 2005 with no policy changes whatsoever on Disney's part. Um, it remains to be seen if this might be more effective. There's some talk of doing other things. There's some talk that the governor has talked about. Disney has all sorts of privileges in Central Florida where they are allowed to build things that normal that people outside of the Disney Corporation are not allowed to build. They're I was allowed going to, to ask run if, things. I was yeah. going to ask if anybody knew what the Reedy Creek Improvement District was. Oh, no. Good. Let's, let's get the details. The Reedy Creek Improvement District is essentially what happened uh, if you go back to California and the original Disneyland – they wanted to acquire a they acquired a whole bunch of land around there and they wanted to you know develop it in their own way and california the legislature was not keen on giving them all the power and all the control that they were looking for and florida being enterprising and seeing that there could be a lot of financial advantage for them they essentially offered to allow Disney to acquire this land in Orlando and it was they created the Reedy Creek Improvement District and essentially Disney runs it all they run everything there they provide security they provide fire protection um, about the only thing as uh, as I heard that they turn to the state of Florida for is elevator inspections everything else regulatory uh, everything else in terms of water management, every single thing is run by Disney. It is an incredible kind of carve out. Um, and it actually dates back to the uh, desire of Walt Disney to develop Epcot, not the park, but the the experimental community. I can't remember exactly what it stands for. The experimental community of tomorrow, this planned community vision he wanted to create. He wanted to build that and as a result needed really full control. So there is a way, to your point, Dan, that they – Florida is really biting the hand that feeds them because if I am not a fan of these kinds of retaliatory political moves, but there is no reason that the state of Florida has to maintain Disney's authority over the Reedy Creek Improvement District. They could liquidate it. They could abolish it. And Disney goes right back to being absolutely under the political governance thumb of the state of Florida. Another thing to think about in this regard, which I think is important, 
is that once upon a time, <clears throat> governors, state governors, uh, legislators, politicians, on both sides of politics, would be very concerned if a corporation uh, came out, basically said, unless you change this legislation, we're going to do different things to you, we're not going to support you, et cetera, et cetera. It, sh it reflects what's going on with the Disney thing also reflects the fact that certainly, at least on the right, there are more and more conservatives who just don't care what corporate America says about a lot of subjects. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, but there's surely a political calculus that's gone into that, right, that many conservatives believe that they are in a position to win, win, inverted commas, of course, to win different fights, different debates, by lining up against uh, a corporate giant like Disney. And that's a, that, that, I think, is going to be part of the political landscape going forward because, you know, the left have never particularly liked corporate America, I mean, at least rhetorically speaking. What I find interesting is that corporate America could well find itself ending up with few allies on either sides of politics because both sides of politics dislike corporate America, albeit for different reasons. So for the left... Corporate America is rich guys. These are, these are people who are bad to workers. They do all these terrible things that hurt the working class, et cetera, et cetera. Well, for the right, corporate America are a bunch of woke activists living in a bubble who are obsessed by identity politics, who are subs totally subservient to cultural leftism, et cetera. If corporate America is not careful, it could find itself very isolated politically and with very few places to go. Laura Ingram on her program uh, on Fox News, it said, uh, when Republicans get back into power, Apple and Disney need to understand one thing. Everything will be on the table, your copyright, your trademark protection, your special status within certain states, and even your corporate structure itself. So to, to Sam's point that you know th there's a nuclear option for everyone here and you find them uh, – a lot of these corporations may find themselves in the position of having enemies on both sides of them and not having a whole lot of friends. And it, it reminds me of one, of one of the few truly great and funny things that Saturday Night Live has done within recent memory was this fake game show called – called Republican or not, where somebody comes out and they give these statements and the two people have to guess if they're a Republican or if they're not. And one of the things the first uh, person who comes out says is, I hate Facebook. Facebook is evil. And the two people who are the contestants are like, uh, do you hate it because they're spreading misinformation or because they banned Donald Trump? It's like, ah, not so easy, is it? Um, and that is the kind of situation where tech companies find themselves right now, that there's a reason that people on, of both political constituencies have issues with them. What is – it should be alarming to us are statements like Laura Ingram's though that are essentially to say we will disregard structures of the rule of law in order to punish you uh, because we don't like you, which is getting into me into very, very dangerous ground. Yeah, there's there there's a balance here because a lot of these legal structures do reflect crony capitalism. The copyright extension was done literally at the behest of Disney in order to preserve Mickey Mouse as intellectual property. Um, that is that is 
probably not going to be extended again for all sorts of reasons. But one of them, certainly a contributing factor, would be this. I think we're scheduled for 2023, that coming into the public domain, finally, after Mm -hmm. many legal revisions. Being extended by the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And yeah, the the huge, one of the huge reasons for the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was Disney, was to keep this kind of intellectual property, the intellectual property of Disney. And there are meritorious arguments outside of this whole political kerfuffle for the for ending that copyright protection and allowing this stuff to enter the public domain. Um, but, you know, it's you, you could have the the right thing happening for very bad reasons. And from a pure policy outcomes perspective, you can look at it and say, well, the right thing happened. So who really cares why it happened? But if it happens for bad reasons, then bad things can also happen for those bad reasons. Um, if we, we should want in some sense, we should not be indifferent to whether or not the process that produces the outcome is a terrible process. Because even if it produces a good outcome, the terribleness in the process means that it could produce terrible outcomes in the foreseeable future. We should really move on to our next topic, uh, which is President Biden has announced that he is going to be releasing from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve Uh, I believe, about a million barrels of oil a day. And this, of course, is to address concerns about rising gas prices, Um, a lot of that being brought about because of what is transpiring in uh, Ukraine with Russia's war on Ukraine. And this is just the this is the president's in case of emergency break glass option, because you see this happen uh, a lot Uh, when gas prices start to get high. And there is always that corollary part of it that um, we should be able to acknowledge here very clearly. The the chances this is going to have a major impact on gas prices are pretty much slim to none. In in terms of the global supply of oil, this is a drop in the bucket. Uh, But what Biden is hoping for, what every president who does this is hoping for, is that it will correlate with a decline in gas prices and they will be able to take the credit for all of it. And to me, this is just highlights um, how dumb our conversations often are about these economic aspects of uh, stories like this. Um, and it's part created by politicians because they want credit for all the good stuff for having done it, but none of the blame for the bad stuff for having done it. And as a result, um, they can only have one of those two. Like either they get no credit and no blame or they get the credit and the blame. And you're probably not going to see a whole lot of impact from all of this because it's just not a whole heck of a lot of oil being added to the total supply. Uh, and Sam, I would think that this would connect as well with the case that uh, we talked about before with uh, sanctions that we have placed on on Russia. This just strikes me as a very paltry attempt to solve a problem created by those sanctions uh, that is probably just not going to work out as well as President Biden would hope it would? Well, whenever presidents do this, it's invariably a type of posturing, right? Because as you say, this is very likely to have little to no effect upon the actual price of gas. The price of gas is being determined by what's available in supply and demand. And for reasons ranging from what's happening with the Ukraine war, but also the Biden administration's desire to move away from the United States, away from fossil fuels. 
these are the reasons that that prices are going up and releasing oil from the strategic reserve i think is is very unlikely to have any effect on all those particular factors that are playing in it reflects the unseriousness of a lot of politics today it reflects the fact that so many political leaders on both sides I seem compelled to posture in this particular way. I'm doing something. Look at me. I'm doing something to fix this problem. When, of course, they're not, and they may even be arguably making it even worse by uh, by by engaging in actions that actually have very little effect at all. Because in the end, this is not going to be resolved by presidents releasing gas from the strategic reserve. This is going to be fixed when we have a, a supply and demand equilibrium, and that's not going to happen while we have what's going on in Russia and while we have an administration and, and a, a whole range of people who are absolutely committed to pushing fuel fuels off the energy sector map. Until that dynamic changes, we're going to end up with high gas prices because prices do reflect these types of realities, right? They do reflect the true state of supply and demand as it exists in the present, given what's going on in the circumstances of the time. So nothing President Biden can do is going to change that particular matter, unless, of course, there's some sort of radical change in ter on terms of sanctions or he and the Democratic Party and the left more generally abandoned this uh, no fossil fuels vision for the world. And I don't see that happening in the near future. You also have a, an abuse of, you know, the reason we have the strategic oil reserve is because if, for instance, world supply chains were to be disrupted, as we've seen in many sectors yeah, when, over when, the past two years. When could years, that possibly happen? Yeah. Um, the, this is oil that is reserved for essential sort of purposes, for military purposes, for um, all sorts of shipping, transportation. And when you use it as a lever to not even affect prices, but to create perhaps the illusion that you're affecting prices for political gain, it undermines the very purpose of it, you know, we, you know, this is going to be the most depleted the strategic oil reserve has been in a very long time. And should the worst case scenario unfold as a fallout from the ongoing conflict in the Ukraine, um, that could that could impact United States military readiness. And uh, I think I think I think it's it's irresponsible. We have the Strategic Petroleum Reserve because of what happened in the 1970s, where you had OPEC putting an oil embargo on the United States and a number of other countries, which created uh, not just price spikes, but gas shortages. And the idea was, you know, yes, there, there are um, more dramatic reasons, like you know, the military need that you just highlighted. Um, if there were a if there were a war, especially a war in uh, a place close to the United States, uh, you know, like <laughs> for some reason there's a war in Canada or something like that. Um, where we have legitimate concern of being cut off from global markets, we want to have that in, in case we need it for the military, yes. Uh, but the more common reason would be to avoid 
having in a situation where, let's say right now you were to have another OPEC plus oil embargo placed on the United States on top of what is going on in Ukraine with Russia. So the sanctions on Russia mean that we're not getting oil from Russia um, and, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to go begging to Iran and we're not going to be able to go begging to Venezuela and we're not going to have enough domestic production to avoid having shortages. Um, now, again, the simple economic point needs to be made. You could avoid having shortages if you did just let prices reflect the actual supply and demand. Those prices may be well above what people would ever want to pay. But again, it is a way of allocating goods and resources uh, in a reasonable way because it is a signal of what actually the supply is and what the demand actually is for it. Uh, but yes, th- this is an attempt to uh, at best band-aid over a problem. And it isn't, again, really even a band-aid because the chances that it's going to actually have an impact on the price of gas are slim to none. Not to mention that it doesn't fix the bigger problems created by uh, the rise in gas prices in the first place, which is making other goods and products and services more expensive because energy is needed all along the supply chain. So it is just creating a political problem, I think, in the future where, you know, you you can't tell people I did this and it's going to have this effect or at least imply it's going to have this effect. And then when it doesn't happen, people are going to be upset. Uh, turns out the public doesn't like being lied to or it, we do see a decline in gas prices, in which case people are going to be like, well, why don't you just release more? Like, just lower the price even more. Get it down under a dollar like we'd all like it to be, which just isn't how these things actually work. Yeah. I mean, that's an excellent point about, you know, prices are a coordination mechanism. And what prices do when they rise is it forces people to economize for, you know, first away from the least essential to the most essential uses um, and if you and if you let that price mechanism you're gonna the reality is we live in a world of scarcity and things will be doled out in different ways there are more efficient and less efficient ways to do that there are more just and less just ways to do that and the price system coordinates those fantastically. Let's move on to our final topic, which dovetails beautifully out of the conversation we've just been having, which was this extraordinary interview that Ezra Klein, um, Ezra Klein was the founder of Vox, uh, now at the New York Times, a man who really fancies himself to be something of a uh, true policy wonk and savant. He had Larry Summers, the economist on his podcast, of course, Larry Summers, who had has been in the Clinton administration, had been in the Obama administration, um, uh, involved in the Biden administration as well. He's been uh, very clearly voicing concerns from the get-go here about all the spending that was going on and the impact that that was going to have on inflation. Uh, so he's on – uh, Ezra Klein's podcast, and I will read you this question from Ezra Klein because I, I got to be honest, Sam, Dan, I don't recall a more revealing question being asked in recent memory, at least for what Ezra Klein actually thinks. So I know you're a hard-nosed economist who looks at the numbers here, but I want to locate, I think, the emotional and to some degree even political frustration of this conversation because a lot of the dynamics you're talking about that 
uh, than get framed as excess demand. There are things that just that feel just that many of us have wanted for a long time. More hiring, wage increases, particularly at the bottom end, stimulus checks for people who have a lot of uh, have had a lot of bad years and didn't have a lot of cushion behind them. Child tax credits for families that could really use that. And so there are a lot of policies that came together. I mean, there was a reason the Biden administration wanted to run the economy hot. There was a long period where it just didn't just feel the economic data showed that expansions were not reaching people on the margins. And it felt finally like we were reaching people on the margins. We were putting a lot of fire, uh, putting a lot of firepower to do that. But even in this terrible time, this horrifying pandemic, we were giving people who needed it quite a bit of help. And then for that to then turn into this horrifying inflation problem, which is now eating back those wage increases, potentially going to require a much sharper action from the Fed. I recognize the world doesn't have to please me, but it's maddening. And I think one of the hard questions before we even get into Ukraine and China, I think one of the hard questions is, does it have to be this way? Did it have to be this way? Is there some way for this to end without the people we were finally helping suffering? Uh, Ezra Klein, neocon, mugged by reality. I, I have no belief whatsoever he's going to change the way he looks at economics as a result of all of this. But the did it his just it's maddening it's it's frustrating to him that uh, as we would as we would point out here at the Acton Institute uh, connecting good intentions I presume and I've no reason to believe otherwise that Ezra Klein doesn't have good intentions but to sound economics and therein lies the rub that the economics were garbage and as a result the results have been garbage well this is a blind spot for a great deal of the left, right? The difference between intentions and some of the hard economic truths that arise from recognition that we live in a world of scarcity, a world in which there are limits, in which trade-offs exist, where the choice for one option necessarily means excluding other options, I mean, the left has has had significant difficulties with this for a long time. Now, let's keep in mind, Larry Summers is not exactly a sort of hard right-wing guy when it comes to all sorts of things. He is a former Clinton administration official. He worked in the Obama administration as well. Uh, but he was, of course, one of the people in both of those administrations who was willing to say things like, if you raise taxes above a certain level, and his, his level is much higher than it would be for me, for example, or any of us, if you raise taxes above a certain level, it is going to have some negative side effects that are likely to affect some of the people that you're interested, that you think you're helping by raising taxes this, this high. So Summers is not exactly, um, he's not spouting conservative ideology here at all. He's really just pointing and has been pointing for a long time, uh, certainly since um, uh, early 2001, to some of these economic realities that should not be denied if you're serious about good public policy that has integrity. You see the same thing, though, of course, on sections of the right. This desire to, we we, we need to help blue-collar workers. Okay, but if you do this, you do realise that 
you may end up hurting more of the same category of people that you're claiming to help. Or when they say things like, um, can't we just have everything that we want and isn't the state there as a way to try and provide these things? And they're very reluctant to listen when you point out, okay, if you do that, these are going to be some of the consequences for Americans, <laughs> for Americans, not people in China, not people in, in uh, other countries run by regimes you hate. This is going to have negative consequences for Americans. So what I think what Larry Summers um, pointed to was basic economic truths that people on the right and the left who take economics seriously would at least acknowledge as well-proven economic truths that are well-established in theory and for which there is a good deal of empirical evidence against a lot of people who, on both sides of politics, who just won't accept these things and keep hoping that somehow reality can be overcome. The fact that scarcity can be overcome. The fact that prices matter can be overcome. The fact that if the Federal Reserve pumps more and more money into the economy, it's going to have these effects at some point in the future. So it's very reflective. The, the, the comments that were, in the, that were reflected in the questions that were asked of how a good deal of the political class on the left, but on some sections of the right as well, think about economics and economic reality. It's something they just don't want to pay attention to. They hope against hope that these realities can somehow be overcome rather than thinking about, okay, well, if that's the reality, if that's what economic truth teaches us, then how do we adjust or think about what we want to do when it comes to helping, for example, the least among us in a way that's cognizant and attentive to these economic realities that are not going to change? I'm left asking the perennial question, how many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? <laughs> and the lesson, as Henry Hazlitt stated, is that the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. And there are a whole host of people that are too smart by half and they look for these corner cases and they look for somewhere in the empirical evidence where something appears to behave as it wouldn't should the economics 101 be true. And you see this, you know, most recently in modern monetary theory, which I think had the ears of a lot of people in the administration. And, you know, the notion of modern monetary theory was, you know, we can actually print a whole lot before we have any inflation. But the second part of it, which no one is talking about, because the modern monetarist theory for, okay, if you get inflation, what do you do? You take the money out of the system. You increase taxes and you just start pulling the money back into the state. And no one is willing to do that. There is no appetite whatsoever for this. So this has a lot of the same sort of political problems in addition to the theoretical problems that let's say, you know, Keynesian analysis has had. Like, you know, there is a theory that somehow we suppose gets us out of the laws of supply and demand 
The theory is applied only halfway, though, only in the ways that are politically convenient. The other half of the theory is never tried. And uh, economics 101 remains undefeated. This is what has for a long time been one of my critiques of the left that is now bleeding over into the right per the point that Sam was making, which is this belief that persists on the left that all good things can and should go together, that you can have policies, you can have regimes that do not result in any bad things whatsoever, that you do not get any of the bad consequences uh, of those actions. And the critique that has always uh, existed of that in my mind from the, from the right, either uh, the history of intellectual history of conservatism or libertarianism, uh, just basically recognizes the fact that you know there are goods and bads and you're going to get a lot of them together as the result of a lot of these policy formulations. And you should be cognizant of that, right? You go back to Bastiat and the seen and the unseen. And the problem with this and a lot of the people, again, in the National Conservative Conference and the way that they are looking at a lot of these questions is to believe that we just don't have to concern ourselves with the unseen. I think you see this not just with regard to uh, – questions of economics and fiscal policy uh, from a lot of these people, but also um, go back to the first topic that we discussed today and uh, its connection to a lot of the CRT legislation. This idea that, oh, we could just pass a bill that just gets rid of this altogether and it will have no ill consequences. It will have no bad effects whatsoever. Um, I, I point also to the uh, abortion law in Texas that allows private individuals to file these lawsuits. Do you not think that now that you have entered this weapon into the world, that California will use it to try to enforce environmental policy, that, um, you know, you make it California or another state that will introduce it to address some of the concerns that they have about First Amendment guaranteed free speech? Um, I think these people are playing a very dangerous game. And because their response is always what I always hear is that you just kind of you build we build ourselves into this paralysis where we just don't people like us, we don't want to do anything to address these really serious problems because we're afraid of the unintended consequences. And I, my response is often that that is not exactly what I am saying. I am not trying to tell you that we shouldn't do anything ever, although I do have some sympathies with you know that argument. What I'm trying to say is we have to at least think about what the unintended consequences are going to be of all of this and factor that in so that we're not caught off guard. And we may just have to come to the realization that the unintended consequences are so much worse than the actual problem or are at least bad enough that maybe we need to rethink how we're trying to do this. Yes, and part of the part of the dilemma, of course, is that everyone's looking to the state to fix all sorts of problems that I think, in many respects, the state can play at best a marginal role in addressing. You see this, for example, with those conservatives, let's call them, some of them are called natcons, although that seems to cover all sorts of things these days, uh, but also others who call themselves common good conservatives. And there's this sense that if only we were in charge, then somehow we could magically use the regulatory state in the administrative state 
to achieve our goals, which not only means basically accepting the progressive reconfiguration of Americans' constitutional structure, but it also basically ends up denying the reality of what the administrative state was created for, who's populating it, why it exists. It exists to carry out left-wing progressive ends as a way of getting around this thing called the Constitution and the rule of law. And that's what I find disturbing about some of these trends on the right, is that the extent to which a lot of progressives and a certain number of conservatives have a very similar view of what they think the state is for. And that is something conservatives should be concerned about. And they seem to also assume that uh, not only if they get into power and can control uh, the administrative state, the regulatory state, that they can do all of these magical, wonderful things. And we will have, uh, in the words of uh, Judge Smales, we only have to choose goodness and not badness, um, that they're going to remain in power, that they're going to remain the ones in control of all of this, you know, rather than doing what I think is the more prudent uh a course of action and trying to diminish that kind of power wherever and whenever we can and return it to in, a, in accordance with subsidiarity to the levels closest to these issues as possible. Um, they are only validating the existence of this top-down power structure. And it's going to have, again, a lot of worse consequences, again, because as the Sam's point out, the likelihood that they're going to, that the left is going to be continuing to be the ones in charge of a lot of these institutions just seems pretty obvious to me. There's not the personnel. There is just simply not, even if, and, and this is, and this is, and this, to get us back to the economics, um, there was a great response to an Orrin Cass essay by uh, Steve Verger at, uh, I believe that's, uh, Forgive me if I pronounce that wrong. At uh, from the uh, American Enterprise Institute, uh, entitled uh, "Modern Economics is Not an Illuminati Conspiracy," <laughs> and the reality. I mean, and this is this is this is there's a, there's a, there's a way in which a lot of these folks just think, oh, like the world is run by a conspiracy. What we need is a counter conspiracy, and the sort of reality of you know, and all of this is is sort of a denial of sort of the priority of culture. And it's the idea that it's the levers of power that run the world and that those are unconstrained by the consent of the governed, by what's uh, – by sort of, you know, the cultural main line of the day, whether we agree or disagree with it, we have to live in that reality. And if we have problems with that, we need to make marginal improvements there to shift it. Um, and that's really, really hard work. It involves building institutions. It involves taking ideas seriously. And it involves engaging in opponents with good faith and trying to persuade rather than devalue or dismiss those people. Let's call it a wrap there. I want to remind you that we want to answer your questions on this program, and there's two ways that you can submit a question to us. We would prefer if you went to Apple Podcasts and you left us a five-star review, and in your comment there when leaving the review, leave the question that you'd like us to answer. But if you're not on Apple Podcasts, fear not, there's a solution. You can email us at unwind at and we will answer your question on this show. 
I want to thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Again, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, and leave us the question you'd like us to answer on the show. Also, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. Thank you.